Hey, good to see all of you here. Um, you know, when we began the service, for those of you who are here, you might have thought that I was very emotional when we first began. Uh, it, was, um, it was because I was just out of breath. I forgot that I had to start the service. So I ran in and I was out of breath. But it was a, a meaningful time, so thank you. You know, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark one paragraph at a time, and we are in chapter 13, all ver uh, 37 verses. We're going to be at a, a fairly rapid pace. It's going to be a little bit academic, and uh, it's going to require a little bit of explanation, but I, I hope that you can just keep up with me. I believe there's some really interesting things in this passage uh, about the end times, the tribulation, and the such. Um, I, I am going to uh, just try to keep it an overview, though. This is the last week of the life of Jesus. Jesus has been uh, spending time in the temple, mainly in a confrontation with uh, those who are in charge of the temple, the religious leaders. And as he was coming out, one of the disciples remarks that uh, this is just a wonderful building uh, with great big uh, stones that hold it. And Jesus surprisingly remarks in verse 2, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Uh, they were surprised, and some of the disciples in private asked him what these mean. And they asked two fundamental questions. And uh, the, the answers to these two questions frame chapter 13. The questions are, the first question is, when will these things be? And second question, what will be the signs when all these things are about to be accomplished? They ask two questions, when and what? If this is uh, a future end times, when will it end? And what will be some of the signs that these things will happen and as we answer these two questions, I want to point to something here that's uh, woven throughout the text that may not be evident when you first read it. But these are markers that tell you that when Jesus is talking, he's not talking about a future, just a single future uh, event, but he's talking about two different uh, events, a more immediate event, which he talks about these things, referring to the destruction of the temple and things surrounding it. And then he also talks about those days uh, sometime in the future in which uh, we do not know when these things will happen in those days. So, for example, verse 30, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. But in verse 19, he says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. So these things and those days. And we'll, if, if, you, if you read chapter, 30, uh, chapter 13 and look for those phrases, you'll kind of understand, oh, he's talking about potentially two different uh, scenarios here, two different sets of things. Now, let's begin with what the signs will be. And, and we have find the answers in verses 5 through 27. But in verses 5 through 13, he talks not about what the signs will be, but what the signs will not be, the non-signs. He says in verse 5, see, 
that no one leads you astray. These are the non-signs. These things uh, are things that a lot of times Christians will point to and say, hey, this, these are the signs of the end times. Uh, Christ is coming imminently. But Jesus warns the audience, his disciples and us, that even when you see these things, these are not the signs. Don't be led astray by them. He talks about three things, deceptions, devastations, and persecutions. Verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Notice the theological term, I am. That is what God said to Moses uh, in the burning bush in the book of uh, Exodus. It is a title that Jesus claims for himself, I am. And from the beginning, many will claim that they are gods and lead many astray. And these are not, uh, these things are not new, and these are not uh, the, the signs that the, that the end time is imminently close. The second non-sign is devastations. Christians have often pointed to things like wars and earthquakes and famines as signs that the earth is near. And those of you who are a little bit older, I don't know if you remember an author by the name of Hal Lindsey. Uh, he wrote a really famous book, The Late Great Planet Earth, uh, in the 70s and 80s. I remember it was all the rage at that time. And it talked about uh, end times. And, and what Hal Lindsey and others would do is they would read the newspaper on the one hand and interpret it with the Bible or Old Testament or, or Book of Revelation or the Thessalonians uh, to interpret uh, what the newspaper uh, means. And so, for example, uh, they would identify the Soviet Union as Gog and Magog of Revelation chapter 20, or the European uh, Union as the Ten Horns of Daniel chapter 7, or Ronald Wilson Reagan. Do you remember him, the president? They would identify as the beast in Revelation chapter 13, and the reason being Ronald Wilson, Reagan, each had six letters, and thus six, six, six. They thought that he had the mark of the beast. It's interesting, but listen carefully to what Jesus says about uh, these devastations. Verses 7 and 8. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. And so every time there's an earthquake somewhere, you know, when we're talking about the greenhouse effect, where we talk about the sea level rising, and people say, well, this is, this is the end. But Jesus makes clear that even when you hear of those things, even if, if there's an increase seemingly of these things, this is not it. And the third non-sign is that of persecution. Verse, verse 9, be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and ye will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness against them as followers of Jesus Christ. You, the church, will be persecuted, not only by government authorities uh, in courts, but by religious authorities in synagogues. 
Um, as you know, uh, James was martyred. He was the first Christian that was martyred that we know of. Paul was martyred. Uh, we know that in 64 AD, uh, Nero burned alive Christians as he blamed them for the fire that started in Rome. And there are countries still uh, in which it is difficult, if not dangerous, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. North Korea, Iran, and China, just to name a few. But in the midst of all of this, listen to verses 10 and 11. Um, this is a promise, this is a prophecy of Jesus Christ, that during this church era, in the midst of persecution and opposition, sometimes even by family, uh, uh, yeah, uh, that in verses 10, that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are about to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. This is a promise that the gospel will get, go forth in spite of persecution and opposition. In the midst of evil and fallenness of the world, the gospel will go forward. Uh, listen carefully. The church is, is not given the assignment of judgment against sin. Listen carefully. The church is not responsible to judge sin. The church is responsible to proclaim the gospel. And in the midst of a persecution uh, by evil, people who hate us, people who are opposed to us, our job is not necessarily to judge and destroy them, but rather to bring uh, the gospel message of redemption that is so difficult, but it will be possible because we have the presence, the fullness of the Holy Spirit in us. I remember when I was in seminary, I had a roommate and we were watching news, and there was um, a particular scandal. A pastor had fallen, and he had a relationship with, with this woman who um, had a, a shady uh, motives and background. And I was watching that uh, piece of news, and I made a remark about that woman. And my roommate, who was, at, at that time was uh, far more godly than I was and am, said, hey, that, that woman, I, she's someone's daughter. She, um, you know, she has a story too. And I just had to repent. And, and that sometimes we, in the guise of uh, a pursuit of holiness, we uh, look at and, and, and judge and treat people as sinners, and our job is to, uh, to judge them and punish them, but our job is to bring the redemptive message of the gospel to them. Now, let's go from the non-signs to the sign, and the pivot happens in verse 14. It says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Now, the language, starting verse 14, changes from these things to those days now. Okay, so, um, so far he's talking about these things are happening, but these are not the signs. This is just the church era. This is just what's common. Now the pivot happens, and the abomination of desolation. 
Um, and, and this is a technical theological term that if you were in a uh, theology class and you're talking about eschatology or future times, uh, they would use this term to describe this turning event. In, it, it talks, uh, what the abomination of desolation is, is when an unholy thing or a person is placed where it's supposed to be holy or sacred and thus, um, thus desecrates it, makes it dirty. There are several guesses or explanations as to what exactly historically the uh, abomination of desol uh, desolation is. But as um, Jesus said in Mark, let the reader understand, meaning uh, the audience was expected to refer to something that was written. We know in the Gospel of Matthew, actually, uh, it talks about Daniel who wrote about this. Now, let me read three passages and I want you to listen carefully to the abomination of desolation where something holy is made unholy and listen carefully also to uh, like uh, time chronology, okay? Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the uh, desolator. Now, also, Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken up away, uh, taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. And finally, Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. All three speak of some sort of a disruption in, in, in sacrifice or worship in that holy place, and there is some sort of a timetable. Now, uh, it's too difficult to, on a Sunday uh, morning service to, to, to fully explain, but let me give you a broad picture of what this may mean, the abomination of desolation. At the end time, or those days, the Antichrist, with a big A, not a small A, because there are a lot of Antichrists or those who oppose Christ, the Antichrist makes a covenant with the Jewish people and builds the temple and reestablishes worship. But after 42 months, which is about 1,290 days or half of seven years or three and a half years, the Antichrist breaks the covenant, stops temple sacrifices, desecrates the temple, and proclaims himself to be God. Okay, I, I don't know if that meant anything to any of us here, but that is an explanation of the abomination of desecration. And when, when, when uh, theologians or, or Christian authors talk about like the seven years, three and a half years, they're not just pulling random numbers out of the air, but they're looking thoroughly at these scriptures, and, and these scriptures are connected somehow the Old and New Testament and, and the future revelation, and, and they, 
they're somehow connected. They're talking about these days and months and years, and they seem to be talking about a set of events. Now, when these things happen, or when this happens, it says that those who are in Judah are warned to flee to the mountains, verse 14, because, verses 19 and 20, for in those days, now remember the phrase, those days, so now, now Jesus is referring to something that will happen way in the future. In those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord has not cut short the days no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. It is catastrophic. It is global to such an extent that unless it's cut short, there would be an annihilation of, of all of humanity in those days. Verses 21 and 22 talks about other false prophets and, uh, uh, and Christ. But what is different now is that they are able to uh, deceive with, with signs and wonders. They have these powers that convince people. In the non-sign uh, times, we would have experienced wars, famines, and earthquakes. Those are things that we experienced. I, I was here when there was the Northridge North uh, North earthquake, right? But those are the non-signs. What's going to happen in those days is different. Verses 24 and 25, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. It is not mere earthquakes and famines. It is the universe going crazy. And finally, in verse 26, and then... They will see the Son of Man, this is a title for Jesus, coming in clouds of great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect, a technical term for Christians, from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is the second coming of Jesus who will, who will gather the elect, gather the saints, and some uh, liken it to, to that of 1 Thessalonians where the dead in Christ shall rise again. Um, Jesus wins in overtime. That's what it means in chapter 13, right? That when, when, the, when, uh, when it's the end end, Jesus wins. Those are the what's of those Days. Now, when will these things happen? Okay? And that's what people are, are curious about. When is it that these things will happen? Well, verse 28 says, hey, we have to learn the lessons of the fig tree. Uh, in verse 30, it says, truly I say to you, this generation will not happen until all these things take place. Now, some people read that and they go, well, okay, does that mean that that the people who lived during that time of Jesus, that, that all of these things should have happened uh, during their lifetime or their generation's lifetime. But remember, I said, look for the phrase, these things, right? And so what Jesus is saying, that this generation, that, that generation that Jesus walked the earth will, with, they will not pass away until these things, the immediate these things, the, the fall of the temple, 
which happened in 70 AD. They not, the Romans came and not only burned the place, but after it was set on fire, they came and literally uh, uh, removed uh, the blocks, uh, the stones uh, from one another. They raised it. That was the beginning of birth pangs, as Jesus said, not the end. When will the end happen? When will the the great tribulation happen? When will all that happen? Jesus says clearly in verse 32, he tells us exactly when those days are coming. Okay, you ready? Jesus tells us exactly when those days are coming. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. What's stunning is that even Him, the second person of the Trinity, God, who is supposedly omniscient, He says, I don't know. Not even I know. Human writers throughout history, and um, authors have tried to guess and predict and give a date for the second coming. And And we should be clear, we should be absolutely, absolutely clear that if anyone ever tries to do that or does that, they are anathema. They are going completely contradictory to what exactly Jesus said. I do not know, you do not know, we cannot know. You know, uh, well-intentioned theologians will debate a lot of the nuance of the end times, the, the latter days, uh, whether Jesus will come back uh, before or middle or at the end of the great tribulation period, uh, whether there will be a literal 1,000-year uh, millennial kingdom after that, or is it a figurative millennial uh, kingdom that we are in the midst of, that uh, whether Christians will be Uh, on earth during the great tribulation or will we have been raptured and so the Christians that are there are the new Christians that whether um, when when Revelation talks about uh, the tribes of Israel is it the literal tribes of Israel the 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 Jews or is it that is it referring to the church in some figurative way and there, the reason why well-intentioned Christians and theologians dif- disagree or differ is because sometimes the scripture is not clear on some of these things. In fact, I, I'm going to say something here that might surprise you, that even among the pastors at Living Hope, we probably differ in some of our interpretation. Now, I want to say something that, which, which um, I believe what I'm saying. There are things in scripture that are very, very clear. Jesus makes it clear, God makes it clear that we're not saved by works, but we're saved by faith. He makes it clear that. That every single person is a sinner. He makes it clear that. That the only way to salvation is by the blood of Jesus Christ that we can, we can receive uh, by faith, by grace. Some, some things are clear. There are other times when it's a little bit confusing. And I think it's a mistake when a Christians try to insist that this is the right answer and everyone has the wrong answer. And Jesus, when he teaches all this, he says, you know, if you're trying to figure out the when, you're going to misunderstand the why I am telling you what I am telling you. 
he says in verse 33, this is the why. This is the reason why I'm telling you this, that I want you to be on guard. Just keep awake, for you don't know when the time will come. He gives an illustration of a master going away, putting in charge his servants. He says, you don't know when the master will come back. In Matthew's version, if you remember, this particular parable, the master goes away, and before he does so, he gives one servant uh, five talents, a second two talent, and a third one talent. And after a long period of time, he comes back to find that the one with five talent had worked hard, invested it, and gained five more. The one who had two talent worked hard and gained two more talent. And the third one, it said, uh, dug it in the ground, and in the, the operable word is he hid them so that there would be no record. Only he would know where the talent is in case the master doesn't come back. And when the master comes back, he, he looks at the one with the five who multiplied it and said, well done. Do you remember the words? Good and faithful servant. To the two, well done, good and faithful. And to the one who hid it said, you wicked and lazy What is the reason why Jesus is giving us all of this information? What does it mean to be on guard? What does it mean to live in an era, the church era, where we know that being a Christian will invite persecution and opposition? What does it mean to live in an era that we know that there's sin in this world where, where that, that, that it will invite war and, and there will be just general broad brokenness, famine, and earthquakes? What does it mean to live in an era like that when people will bring us to court or accuse us during that time for just being a Christian? Be on guard. What does it mean? Let me ask you a question. God has given to you a set of responsibilities talents. And there are times when we're presented with persecutions and oppositions and, and sin. What is it that we do with those responsibility, talents, and gifts that God has given to us or to you? Am I living in the present reality that knowing that brokenness exists and I am called to be gospel redemptive agent. You know, this past week, uh, and, and, and it's, it's hard to escape what hap uh, what's happened. My social media feed is uh, just filled with rants and sorrow and grief. And um, on my social media feed, I don't know about you, I'm friends with a lot of pastors and so they're all talking and, and, and responding. Uh, a good friend of mine, a friend of mine who pastors in Atlanta texted me that morning. Have you read this? It's, we're consumed by it. Uh, he was uh, interviewed, I, I believe, for CNN, and um, that was, or Time Magazine, I forget. And um, he did a good job, but I was stunned by some of the comments that filled that particular newsreel. 
a lot of hatred. I, I, I thought it would be a few, but I, I was just so stunned by how much. I was on a, a Zoom call with about 20 leaders just yesterday. Um, about half um, Christian male leaders and a half female leaders. And um, they were all speaking up, uh, lamenting, trying to figure out what they need to do. I was talking to a pastor who said, well, you know, what he's planning at their church is they're going to have an evening of prayer for especially the women in their church who may have felt triggered, who may have recalled incidents from their past that have deeply wounded them. Let me ask you a question. What are the pains, the experiences, the relationships that God has entrusted to you and said, be responsible, be on guard, be my agent of redemption. I'm going to ask the band to come up at this time. Would you take a minute and ask the Lord, what is it that God has given to you, a redeemed sinner? What are you burdened with? What is God's call to you?